0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you. The Didache, which is a first century Christian writing, early first century, parts of it perhaps as early as A.D. 30, uh, which is a sort of catechetical teaching document, also the first uh, church manual, it begins in this way. It says, There are two ways one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. This stark contrast between the narrow road which leads to life and the broad road which leads to destruction is what we see in today's lessons and what we see throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 17 proclaims that those who trust in the Lord will be led into fruitfulness. But those who trust in, quote, mere mortals will find themselves, spiritually speaking at least, if not actually speaking, in a state of aridity in the desert. Psalm 1 describes the blessing that will come to the righteous and the doom that will come to the wicked. And Jesus here in Luke 6 describes and prescribes the way of blessing and the way of woe. Perhaps the key background text for understanding Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6 is Deuteronomy 28, where Moses lays out the blessings and the cursings of the Old Covenant. Moses exhorts Israel to be faithful to God by keeping the covenant, describing the blessings that will come if they do, and the cursings that will come if they don't. So Jesus stands up on this plane as the new and true Moses, and he lays out the blessings and curses of the new covenant in a way that is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 28 and consonant with The entire Old Testament catechetical tradition. This sermon, which this is the Sermon on the Plain, I know it's very similar to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did not have the benefit of Apple Podcasts during his ministry, so we have to preach similar sermons more than once. Again, the blessings and woes which Jesus gives are both descriptive and prescriptive. They're both indicatives And imperatives. The sermon on the plain is both announcement and instruction. Jesus is telling us how the citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought to live. But he's also announcing something that is happening at present. That through his own person and work, the blessing of God is being poured out upon Israel and the world. That blessing is coming to the poor and to the hungry, and to the mournful. But it's also prescripted. For in this sermon we are shown which virtues to cultivate and which vices to avoid. We are given a path upward so that we can be in practice people of the age to come. As St. Augustine said of the Sermon on the Mount, but it could equally be applied to the Sermon on the Plain. In it we find, quote, the perfect standard of the Christian life. So let's go through these. He begins this way. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Another key background passage for Jesus' sermon is Isaiah 61, which is an overtly, messianic passage. It's clearly speaking of the Messiah, and it's likely the reason that Jesus began his sermon in the way that he did. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, The Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And at the the outset, at the beginning of his public ministry, one of the first things he does in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61 is that he proclaims good news to the poor. Jesus is announcing to the outcast, to those who on account of their poverty would have been viewed as cut off, From blessing. Because especially in the ancient world, people saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing. So if you don't have wealth, you don't have blessing. You don't have divine favor. So Jesus is announcing to them that they are included in the kingdom of God. He's announcing to, and this is key, he's announcing to the righteous poor that they are, in the words of St. James, "...rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him." Now, Jesus isn't saying that if you want to be blessed, then you must be poor, or conversely, that the rich are damned. Nor is he teaching that all who are poor will be saved by virtue of their poverty." St. Basil writes this, But not everyone oppressed with poverty is blessed, but he who has preferred the commandment of Christ to worldly riches. In the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, and he adds, in spirit. Thus taking this beatitude as a prescription And as a virtue to be cultivated, Jesus is calling his followers to be detached from the things of this world. To not be, for example, lovers of money. To not put our trust in horses and chariots. As a kid, we would sing a song about that. We had no idea what we were singing about. Like, we don't even have horses and chariots. Why would we trust in them? But to put our trust in the Lord, again as Jeremiah 17 says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So poverty in and of itself is not a virtue. However, it can be. In the, monas- in the monastic tradition, a vow of poverty is taken in order to detach from this present age and to attach to the age to come. In the Christian life in general, and especially during the season of Lent, which is just around the corner, the first Sunday of Lent, is, which I'm very excited about. You know my dark, melancholic personality. Love Lent. It's my favorite season. <laughs> in Lent, we do battle. We go out into the wilderness with Jesus, and in the power of the Spirit and by his grace, we do battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And one of our weapons against worldliness is almsgiving is generosity. Because when we give, it detaches us from the things of the world. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Second, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Again, this is an announcement of blessing coming to the hungry in and through Jesus and in and through his mystical body, the church. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We should hunger for the things of God as much and even more than we hunger for food and water. What did Jesus say to his disciples who had gone to get food after his encounter encounter with the woman at the well in John 4? He said, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And one of the ways that we, one of the practical ways, Things One of of the practical things that we can do, one of the spiritual practices that we undertake in order to cultivate this uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness is fasting. Because what we do in fasting is we forego our temporal wants and needs so that we can press in to things eternal. It's a way that we discipline ourselves. So that we can live as sons and daughters of God, not at the mercy of our bestial impulses, but under control of the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, what rules us? Our stomachs, our desires, or the Spirit of God? shaping us and fashioning us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Those in Christ who suffer in this life, who endure what in comparison to the glory to come is, as Paul says, a light momentary affliction, will know God's comfort and presence in this life and unspeakable joy in the age to come. In other words, those who weep now, there is the comfort and the presence of God in this life. There is the hope that we have because God will take whatever suffering we undergo, whatever makes us mourn and weep, and if we cooperate with His grace, He will use it for good in our lives and in the lives of others and for his glory. We have the hope that when we see Christ face to face, that at the last, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And moreover, those who weep over their sins will find the comfort and consolation of forgiveness, forgiveness that comes through the precious blood of Christ. Because there's no true joy and there's no true lasting joy in sin. It's repentance from sin which is the prerequisite for and the path to joy. So Jesus in this beatitude gives Hope to those who suffer and hope to those who sin. Therefore, he gives hope to us all. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. Fortitude is a virtue that characterizes the blessed man, that characterizes the blessed woman who is walking in the Spirit according to the law of Christ, which the Spirit has written on the hearts of believers. Jeremiah 17 says of the blessed ones, Psalm 1 says a similar thing, that they shall be like a tree planted by water sending out its roots by the stream. It shall, it shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Jesus then gives a series of four woes. Woe, the word woe does not denote merely sorrow, but connotes unspeakable destruction. First he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What do we do do with this? Does this mean the rich cannot be saved? I hope not, because then none of us are going to be saved. Because if you think about where we're at, even though... We have financial struggles even as Americans. If you look at historically in comparison with how, how people have lived historically and how people live throughout the rest of the world, we have it pretty good. If you, if you have a car that's your own, you're in the top 1% or 2% of wealth in the world. So are we all in trouble? Just as there are, it's important to understand this, these biblical categories. There's the righteous poor and there's the unrighteous poor. There's the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich. St. Ambrose writes this. He says, it is not those who possess riches, but those who know not how to use them that are condemned by the authority of the heavenly sins. Perhaps the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is given later in Luke, helps to flesh this out. The rich man was one who misused his... His riches. He did not hunger and thirst for righteousness. He put all his stock in the things of this world. He lived for this present age and this present age alone. So he was poor as it regards the age to come. Lazarus, on the other hand, in the parable, was a righteous man. But in that parable, it's interesting to note that one of the figures is Abraham, who himself would be counted among. Abraham was very wealthy he would have been counted among the righteous rich. It's about detachment from the things of this world and cultivating a spirit of generosity and seeking first the kingdom of God instead of the things of this world. Second, woe. He says, woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. That is, woe to th- those who are satisfied now, who seek for and trust in the things of this present age, who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Woe to, those th- woe to those who seek satisfaction in things temporal. Satisfaction which will never come, by the way. And neglect those things for which you were created. Woe to those who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Those who weep, And repentance, who weep over the brokenness of this world, will be comforted. But those who laugh at God, who mock Him and His commandments, will in turn weep at the last day. Finally, woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Now, all is the key word. All is the key word. Uh, It's been interesting, I've been spending some time in uh, the pastoral epistles, uh, specifically 1 Timothy uh, and Titus, because as many of you know, well, all of you will know now, uh, I've been elected to the search committee for the fifth bishop of the Diocese of Central Florida. So we have been, uh, as much as we can, hammering home, well, maybe we should look at the Bible and see what the biblical qualifications for a bishop are. So that we can pray for and seek that. And one of the, one of the things it says about a bishop is one of the qualifications is, is that he must be thought of well by outsiders. Must have a good reputation with outsiders. Those are people who are outside of the church. So how do we square this with the sermon on the plane? Well, in the pastoral epistles, it's an issue of reputation as it relates to one's integrity. If a cleric has a reputation, you know, of going to you know, strip clubs on Sunday after church that's not gonna be thought of well by outsiders. I'll cut that part and post if you guys are nervous about that being on the internet. Actually I won't. Just let it go out there. Let it fly. Ooh, what is he talking about now? You know? <laughs> It would be like a soundbite, like it would be clickbait. You know, just put that line up. Send it to our current bishop; he'll love that. The reality is, if you follow Jesus, not all will speak well of you. If you follow Jesus, there will be opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The false prophet, as Jesus points out is well-liked because he tells people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And the reality is, is that if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed, if you follow him, there is going to be opposition. You will have people that don't like you or at least don't like what you believe or how you like to live, And they may even hate you. But blessed are you, brothers and sisters, if in the face of opposition, of mockery, of suffering, of even persecution, you hold fast to your Savior. As the Colic says, and this is key, we can do no good thing without the help of God's grace. Luke 6 is not saying do better. Try harder. Pull yourself up. For God's sake, get it together. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be like Jesus. This is a call to be who we are in Christ Jesus and to walk in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are people of the age to come. The law of Christ, which Jesus is expounding here in Luke 6, has been written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. The virtues of which Jesus speaks that he wants us to cultivate... Are there. Now they may be latent, they may be dormant, because instead of cooperating with grace, instead of walking in the Spirit, we resist the Spirit. We listen to the old man, the old woman, instead of living out and cultivating the identity that we have in Jesus Christ we have in Christ everything we need for life and godliness it's a matter of pressing into and plumbing the depths of the riches we possess in him So brothers and sisters, let us cooperate with grace. Let us grow in grace by being poor in spirit, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, by mourning over sins when we commit them, and enduring hardship, whatever that may be, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two ways, the way of life in Christ and the way of death without Christ, and there is a great difference between these two ways. So let us enter in, even this morning, more fully into the blessed life which is found in Christ and Christ alone, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory and praise. Amen.